Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Consumers are voters, and voters elect PUCs or elect elected officials such as governors who appoint the PUCs who regulate the utilities and they elect the legislatures who set the legislation that impacts the utilities. So that drive and awareness for renewable energy that I think community solar supports is, I think, directly correlated to these commitments that you're seeing to 100% renewable energy. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome to episode 136. And as always, it's so humbling that you've chosen to invest your greatest resource here in Suncast. That, of course, is your time. Happy New Year. We're kicking off the new year with an entrepreneur out of Colorado who's been instrumental in creating the category we call today Community Solar. Are you unfamiliar with that term? Well, today you'll learn not only what it is, but why David decided to spend the better part of his 20s capturing a huge share of this booming segment. His company has coined the fourth vertical. Does that sound familiar? Well, we first mentioned it here on Suncast by one of his former employees and now CEO of Nikola Power, JW Postal. You can find that episode with JW and more great founders stories and solar startup advice over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, check out the Suncast tribe where you can be part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, solar warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, if you, like me, have been feeling like you're a little behind the times on this whole community solar market initiative, boom, if you will, and if you haven't listened to our episode with JW Postal and you're just now catching up, you're in luck because today we have a Forbes 30 under 30 fantastic entrepreneur by the name of David Amster Olszewski, who's going to join us and talk about founding a company called Sunshare. He founded it in 2011. He's been the CEO ever since, growing it to one of the leading community solar companies in the nation. Frankly, I feel like many of you, like me, are wondering what exactly does community solar mean? We're going to jump into that with David. He was part of a foundational project with Colorado Springs Utilities that was the first program in the nation that is so-called competitive community solar, and we'll dig into what that means and uh, in true startup fashion, like a solar warrior that we would want to have here on, uh, on Suncast, David ran that project out of his apartment with the help of interns. David, welcome to Suncast. Thank you. Glad to be here. You got some real foundational experience in the industry. Could you give us a little bit of understanding of how you got your start in solar? Where did the idea come from that you just wanted to, that this is how you were going to jump in as an entrepreneur or even as part of your career? Well, it started in my freshman year in college, actually, and uh, I had just moved from Florida to Colorado and uh, started to learn about the connections between the gasoline that you were, we were using in cars and the effect that that's having on the environment. If I was living some other place in South Florida, I probably would have come upon this realization a little bit sooner, but uh, <laughs> it's a different culture there, and uh, or it was a different culture. Maybe it still is. 
But uh, moving out to Colorado, I really started learning about the connection of what we were doing to our planet, and then also the economic impacts. Uh, you know, most of the last recessions were preceded by a dramatic cost in the in the price of oil. So I, I got very interested in looking at alternatives to that in my freshman year, and it it just so happened two two things happened to me in the third month of college. I was in an economics class, and my professor used to work for uh, the government on the policy side, so he took us up there. It just so happened that one of the board members at uh, our college, Colorado College, was uh, married to Jim Woolsey, the, the former director of the uh, CIA. Huh. And he, uh, over the uh, you know last couple decades, has become one of the preeminent voices on renewable energy being the solution to a lot of America's national security issues. I just happened to be sitting next to him at a dinner table while I was taking this class, and he was talking about ethanol, cellulosic, biodiesel, solar energy, battery storage, all of these things, you know, back in 2006, and uh, or actually 2005. I was just uh, fascinated by that. I just so happened, maybe it was a month or two later, to uh, meet a guy by the name of Tom Dinwoody, one of the original um, solar integrators. He's a, an inventor and a very sharp businessman who, who started that company. Mm. Yep. So I ended up that summer uh, taking an internship with his company, Powerlight, in Geneva, Switzerland. And that wow. was my entree to solar energy, was landing in Switzerland and taking a train up to Germany for the world's biggest solar conference, which I think had about 20,000 people in a 40,000-person town. So I was thrown into solar energy on a scale that, that we just didn't have in the United States here that, that was blowing up in Germany at the time. And it's a very exciting industry, an exciting time, and I haven't left, left it since. What an amazing way to start your career. I mean, to jump in to Powerlight and then obviously parlay that experience later on into SunPower certainly gave you an insight into where the industry is and is going that few people at that time had. I mean, you, you must have been around sort of contemporaries with Jinya when he was starting work with Powerlight as well, yeah? Mm-hmm. There's a whole cohort of, uh, of folks our age that sort of started at the same time. Yeah, there, there are. They're all over the place now. So after graduating college, you got the job at SunPower, yeah? That's right. When did it occur to you during this time that you're working at SunPower that you that this wasn't satisfying. You might want to start off and, and go do something on your own. How did that come about for you? I had a, a lot of fun at SunPower. The, the uh, CEO, Tom Warner, uh, let me create my own management training program. So I was learning about different aspects of the business under a different executive every every so you know six months or so hmm. so uh, he was gracious enough to kind of take me under his wing and, and let me do that and let me sit in the executive meetings uh, that he had on a weekly basis and the earnings calls and just a tremendous opportunity that uh, he afforded to me that I'm very grateful for how did you get a role that gave you direct access to Tom Warner <laughs> that's a funny story well so I, I had been an intern at Powerlight and then interned at at SunPower. So I, I, you know, got to know Tom then through, through the transition. After I graduated college, I, uh, you know, had a Subaru. I uh, wanted to meet with Tom and ask him for a job. So I threw all my stuff in my Subaru from Colorado and drove over to California and got a meeting with him. And he uh, accepted that. And I sat down and I said, look, I, I really want to learn from you. I think you built one of the best solar companies in the industry. I 
like to learn what I can from you. And I knew he had gotten started. He had told me once before that he got started at General Electric doing a rotational management training program. So uh, I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to do something like that. He says, well, uh, you know, where are you living right now? What are you, what are you up to? And I pointed outside. I said, that's my car. I got all my stuff in it in the back. I, <laughs> I just moved right out here to have this conversation. He, he laughed and he, uh, you know, told me to step outside and write up a job description. It was uh, a bunch of uh, luck and, and him just doing willing to do something that was really cool. So you're going through this sort of GE style rotational program within creating it within SunPower. Yeah, it wasn't really a program. It was, it was more like me wandering around to different departments. But <laughs> you're asking a bunch of annoying questions of folks that were wondering why you were Tom's now, like you're Tom's right hand. That's fantastic. We, we, we painted some of the walls in their old headquarters. And, uh, you know, I... I put different paint colors and people could figure out what to paint the walls as I was, I was working in the HR department at the time. And like literally we had 10 different wall colors and people were writing messages about first solar and co- other competitors on the wall. And we picked mm-hmm. the colors and they painted them up. So it was just, I had a lot of free reign there. At what point did it occur to you at some power that you had this entrepreneurial spirit and you started getting ideas for how to start your own company and what you might want to step out and do? Well, so it was actually uh, my mother came up with the idea for community solar. You know, I'd been in solar for a while and she said, you know, I can't get rooftop panels on the roof of our house because we had a flat roof, but we had this structural element around the top of the house on the southern side that would have blocked the uh, the sun. And then also we had trees on the east and the west. So it's a bad location for uh, putting rooftop right, solar panels. So said, common well, story. Yeah, exactly. 80% of homes in the country have this this or other issues, um, so they can't do rooftop solar. And she said, you know, we already have the power lines, and I, I don't have a coal-fired power plant in, you know, in the basement <laughs> to, to get our electricity now. Why, why do we have is, – isn't there a way I can get solar energy elsewhere? She happened to be um, driving around a basalt, Colorado, and heard that the local utility was talking about a – a community solar program. So she gave me a call and she said, you know what, why don't you do this? It sounds like a cool idea. And she, she said, why don't you do this? So I went and I, I had known a couple of the utility board members for Colorado Springs Utilities from my, my time as a student at Colorado College. So I went and had some conversations with them because they were a municipal utility and Colorado had just passed a community solar garden piece of legislation, but nobody was implementing it yet. And I asked them if they would like to start a program in Colorado Springs. They said, yes. So that's, that's how SunShare was born. Just that easy. <laughs> it was a lot of work. But it was surprisingly easy how everything kind of seemed to fall into place. There was a lot of, a lot of luck there and serendipity. There was a lot of momentum behind the concept we were proposing of, of bringing the choice of solar to, to anyone who wanted it. This is while you are actively sort of pursuing this dream of working for Tom and uh, SunPower, but you are getting these ideas. As you said, this is how SunShare was born. You're still an employee at SunPower. In, in your mind, how did you how did you think about funding this new venture and getting out of your day job into the this business that you wanted to start? So I left SunPower and then started SunShare. So as soon as Colorado Springs Utilities basically said, "Yeah, we think we'd want to start this community solar program," you're like, "Great, I'm going to go start a company and compete for these opportunities." No, there was some there was some time between there. Um, so I, I had left SunPower and I was looking at thinking about doing graduate school with an eye towards starting a business. Mm-hmm. Um, the business idea I actually had at the time was to do a uh, you know crowdfunding model for uh, solar finance 
if you remember, um, what was it Solar Mosaic? Mm-hmm. Mosaic yeah. um, was was doing that out in uh, in Berkeley. Oakland. I think they were yeah. Berkeley at the time. I don't even think they had an office yet. And so I had that idea, and then kind of had those ideas separately. Around that time, I was working with some Cal students. We were kind of developing that at the same time. And but I, I just didn't see. I saw a lot of cheap capital entering the market, so I didn't think that crowdsourcing was going to be a competitive source of capital. So we had a business plan for it, and we were looking at that, and so on and so forth. But um, didn't end up going in that direction. And that's when my mother called me up and said, "What do you think about community solar?" And that's that's kind of how I got into uh, the Colorado. Did you fund it on your own, or did you raise capital? No, we we've actually never raised um, any equity capital. Um, so we we really bootstrapped the business for for part of my time working at SunPower, actually, which is about two years. I uh, was living with a, a friend of mine who. Um, had a, a large house that he had inherited, a uh, really mm. great guy. And so I was able to save uh, you know, money from my time working and I, I live very modestly. So I was able to save that money and scrape some, uh, some dollars together. And uh, that's what I used to, to uh, start Sunshare. Yeah. For those who are paying attention, this was nine years ago. Is that right? That would have been um, seven years ago, almost eight years ago. It'd been seven and a half years. Yeah. Eight, eight years yeah this, roughly this 2011. March. Uh-huh. What do you feel like in hindsight, was the easiest thing about starting Sunshare? Finding people to support what we were doing. I mean, that's what I was really impressed by is um, the community in Colorado Springs, you know, all the way up to the city council people and the utilities board members really got behind what it is we wanted to do. None of these pieces would have come together and been possible if that momentum wasn't there from the community, that the community really wanted this to happen. And, and, you know, you may know about Colorado Springs. It's not known as the most it's progressive place. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very conservative uh, community in Colorado, mm-hmm. but they really wanted to show that, that they could create the first community solar program in the state, in Colorado, but also in the country that was really important to them. And also supporting a local Colorado college graduate moving back into that city. They really wanted to support that. Given that inertia and given that local support, what surprised you about starting Sunshare and getting it off the ground? What came harder than you anticipated? I would say I feel like the, the process to create a new program took a really long time. <laughs> but now that, now that I look back at it, it actually took like three or four months to, to change the law in Colorado Springs to allow somebody other than the Monopoly Utility to sell solar subscriptions seeing the two to three to four year processes that it has taken in other states like uh, you know the as community solar has grown to both pass the legislation write the rules and then work through the utility to create a program in hindsight Colorado Springs took 10 percent of the time and it was unbelievably incredible so the hardest thing was after Colorado Springs growing the program into other states was the uh, realizing the speed at which it the slow speed at which you can change policies compared to the, the rapid pace of business innovation and technological innovation that we're, that we're seeing in this space. Yeah, I see. It's interesting because you got, you were afforded an unbelievable opportunity to jump in at the right place at the right time with the right idea. And the uptake was rapid such that when it looked like those scenarios were presenting themselves in other states, the sentiment, oh, this looks a lot like Colorado Springs, we'll have this done in less than six months, took three years. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that was, that was a massive learning experience. And there's a lot of lessons learned in, in that experience. And it, it really made me realize how special Colorado Springs was and what they, what they did. So let's unpack. Obviously, there's a lot of learning there, but I feel like broadly speaking, 
you know, you're steeped in this. Broadly speaking, the solar community is just starting to come alive to this notion of community solar, right? I can tell you that in the United States, we have something special happening that other places are looking at as a model, you know, Latin America, uh, et cetera. But can you just help understand when you guys started the program for Colorado Springs, what was the essence of community solar? I mentioned that JW Postal was on the show. I think it was episode 62 or something like that. He called this the fourth vertical, right? Utility, commercial, residential, and now community solar. Mm -hmm. Help us understand the essence of community solar. What's it meant to supply that is, that is a fourth alternative? And then I have some follow-on questions for that. But I want to really get at what does it mean and why is it growing so rapidly right now? Well, community solar, we, and, and JW actually, we came up with that phrase when he was working at SunShare uh, a number of years ago. And the, the reason we called it the fourth vertical was because the traditional three verticals of solar have been residential panels on the roof of a house, commercial panels on the roof of a building, a commercial building or on land adjacent to that commercial building. And then utility scales, so you build a big project out in the field and connect that project to the grid and sell it to the monopoly utility. Those are the three verticals. And Community Solar created this fourth vertical that allowed you to build utility projects that were connected to the utility, but to sell that energy to the residential and commercial customers in that utility. And it allowed us to serve those residential and commercial customers and to get them the benefits of solar energy without that requirement to have the panels on their facility or mm -hmm. on their home, which for 80% of the homes in America uh, is not feasible due to rooftop shading issues or you know age of the roof or cost or credit score or any number of things. So that's why we called it the fourth vertical because it encapsulated the, the benefits of all three verticals and brought it together in one vertical that was an overall better product for the consumer. Yeah. Do you feel that community solar is going to eclipse the other verticals, resident, commercial, maybe even utility in terms of overall gigawatts installed over the next five years? Or is it, where does it play overall? I'm not sure if it's going to eclipse all of the others per se. I think the model that it's driving is going to eclipse everything that we've seen. And that model is 100% renewable energy. It's letting customers consume 100% renewable energy. That's all community solar did is, is a vehicle to bring the taste of choice for 100% renewable energy to customers in a very easy to sign so I think the manifestations of that are going to change state by state and utility by utility, whether it's a 100% renewable energy run by the utility, or if you've got private businesses and small businesses and large businesses that are driving the change in different markets. So I think the, the underlying concept, which is solar renewable energy choice for everyone, will become the dominant practice in our industry in the next uh, 15 to 20 years. Uh, whether or not it's being called community solar at the time, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You mentioned as you expanded, you've since uh, you've since grown to over a hundred megawatts of projects in your pipeline. You're multi-state vendor. Uh, you are partnering with two additional utilities besides uh, Excel. There's a lot of learning there as a pioneer in this new model. One of the things that occurs to me, uh, and I'll ask a question a little bit around microgrids and transactive energy. One of the things that occurs to me is this is a new billing model. How has the industry approached and handled billing as a technical issue? Well, I, I think the it's maybe new for 
energy customers to be getting a bill separate from their monopoly utility. But billing of customers, it's very similar to wireless and telecom, mm-hmm. you know, where you where you see monthly consumer service bills. And, and most people, if not all people, have them. So uh, that's actually, you know, our, our head of uh, customer service and marketing and operations, uh, Melina Fleming, is terrific at that. And, and uh, her back, background was uh, in, in wireless telecom. So we leaned heavily on, you know, experience from that space in building out our model and our platform. How do you, as a young CEO, think about building your team? Who are the first early hires that you made? And perhaps what are some uh, early lessons learned in hiring that you would do differently? I think, you know, in terms of early hires, I hired people that I could work with and uh, that I had fun spending time with. Because, you know, when you're starting a new company, you're spending a lot of time together. I mean, nights and weekends and mornings and afternoons and uh, and holidays and uh, you're, you're living, breathing, eating together. So I think being around people that you could really have a fun time with was very important on in creating our company and creating a good culture. Mm-hmm. And were there any particular skill sets that you were trying to backfill apart from your own? How did you assess that? You know, it was mostly not having a ton of experience, you know, in corporate America in the past or with it, with, with any businesses, uh, you know, I mean, it, I did have the experience with SunPower. I wouldn't say I had a, you know, a career worth of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, a lot of it was through talking to people, uh, talking to mentors and advisors about what, what roles were needed. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the majority was seeing that a problem came up and, and realizing, uh-oh, we need that skill set. We need, we need somebody that knows that and then trying to figure out what type of person actually knows that. It was very much a learning experience and a development experience. Yeah, and fortunate where you are as I think about sort of the landscape of the United States energy fabric. There's you know, Colorado Springs, Boulder, Denver area is just such a, it's a, it's a hotbed of innovation. You know, I mean, apart from the fact that you got tech innovation with Techstars and others, you've got companies like Wonder popping up out of uh, Denver and Boulder area, but you've got advanced sort of future thinking uh, utilities like Excel, where you've got executives and board members that are willing to lean in and help young entrepreneurs. I think that was a really fortunate place to be, if nothing else. Let's move to the segment I call hot or hype. It's a a slight foray away from uh, digging into your personal business. I'll name a specific market or topic and you'll spend 30, 60 seconds. We'll talk about whether you think it's hot or hype. And maybe the answer, as we discovered with Sam Vanderhoop, is, is, is hope. So the first topic is microgrids. Around the topic of microgrids, we're looking at microgrids as a core part of the future of the grid. Is that hot or hype? Oh, I'd say that's definitely hot. I think it's reality. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> the direction things are going to go. And do you think that is a part, basically, is, is a is part and parcel to sort of the utility model moving forward. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. You're bringing in different types of uh, automated controls on homes and systems and the ways that we use energy or you're changing the way that we use energy by bringing in electrification of cars and, and pretty shortly trucks and hopefully SUVs. <laughs> and then you're also bringing in distributed renewable energy. And then you're bringing in large-scale renewable energy, mm-hmm. and it, it completely changes the makeup of the grid, where energy yeah. is coming from and going mm-hmm. to, and how much of it, and where it's being used. And uh, the microgrid is really the framework that 
facilitates that. So that's, that's, I guess, where I say where it's not just hot, but it's reality. Mm-hmm. You have to change the way that you are using, producing, and communicating about energy with all of that, all those changing dynamics. And that's what the microgrid is. It's bringing energy management to the, the micro scale. The next topic for Hotter Hype is vehicle to grid, the nexus of distributed energy, e-mobility, hotter hype. I think that's definitely hot as well. I mm-hmm. just, you've got an electric car myself and I moved into a new home about four months ago, so I don't yet have solar panels on my roof. So I am part of a community solar garden though, but I'm also going to have rooftop solar. And my project immediately after that is going to be connecting my car to my home so that um, they can power one another and the car can actually serve as backup for the house, which I'm told voids the warranty but I guess I don't really care. <laughs> How do you... What, In what the spirit can, of scientific advancement. I love it. What, oh, what control system... Yeah, what control system is, uh, are you leaning on? Are you looking towards to be able to connect the car? No clue as of yet, but I have some smart people at, at Sunshare that uh, aren't in that uh, aren't doing that now, but but which know a lot about that from uh, past roles that they've had at other places. And uh, I'm going to lean on heavily to help me figure that out. I love it. Fantastic. The power of being the CEO of a company. <laughs> so I, I have no clue. <laughs> but awesome. I'm told it can be done and therefore I want to do it. That's perfect. That sounds like uh, that sounds like the visionary uh, vision caster a CEO ought to be. Blockchain as it relates to energy, hot or hype? Well, I feel like I'm giving the same answer to everything, but I'd, I'd also say, uh, I'd say it's hot. I don't know exactly, you know, looking at blockchain, I spent a lot of time like looking at it and trying to understand it. But at the end of the day, I boiled it down to it just being, um, actually, I didn't boil this down. Keith Martin, a, a tax attorney, very, very bright guy. And I consider, consider him to be a mentor is, uh, explained it to me once he, he said, um, it's basically just an advanced spreadsheet like Excel that it's constantly adding debits and credits to accounts and yeah. it's doing so directly. So it's, it's just a, it's a, if a different way of accounting for debits and credits that can go directly between customers using a technological backbone instead of the technology that we've had before where you have to pass through banks and Fed Reserve nodes and all these other steps. So it, it removes the friction in the process. It seems like it's a, a natural evolution, just like you went from landlines to cell phones. And, you know, you can't sit on your landline and listen to other people that I've heard you could do 50 to 60 years ago when you're <laughs> just at home on your on your landline. Yeah. So, you know, now you go on the phone and uh, you'd be crazy to think that somebody next to you is sitting and listening in on your conversation that it wasn't direct. Uh, I, I think that you'll see the, the same thing happen in, in the transactional space where, where wherever money changes hands. Last topic always in Hotter Hype is transactive energy. And I'll note that obviously in uh, a world where uh, someone is fostering the notion of community buying power, uh, there's, an imp- there's an implied sense of transaction at the community level. A lot of folks have pushed back on whether or not the notion of pure transactive energy is hype. What are your thoughts? Hot or hype? And I would, I would even ask how far away from true transactive energy for solar are we? That's a difficult one because it, it requires changing laws at the at the state and local level mm-hmm. um, across the country. Because right now, in most states across the country, selling energy that's produced on your house over to your neighbor or that you've bought somewhere else, however you've bought it, that's actually illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, in Colorado Springs, that's why we had to change the city council regulations because 
breaking that utilities monopoly would have been would have been illegal. So it's very much a legislative issue that needs to be worked around, and uh, the utilities are going to fight that hard. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that one. I I, uh, I don't know where the tea leaves are going to fall around that concept. It would be completely different if this was like wireless, where you could just wirelessly transmit energy from here to there, uh, because then you you can't actually stop it. But um, and it would be difficult to track it. But as long as we're using power lines, it's easy to stop and it's easy to track. So you really have to go through the interconnection process and go through the utility and the, therefore the regulatory and legislative process to do anything. Yeah. Fantastic. I've often wondered what it would be like without uh, power lines because then you could really make change fast. Without the existing infrastructure that was that was born out of the early part of you know, the early last century. Like well, and grid. without needing it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Without requiring it. Mm. If you're a Helioscope fan, you're going to love this because the industry's best design and engineering software platform is now the industry's best sales platform. That's right. With Helioscope's new integrated proposals, you can quickly move from input to finished product, complete with payback analysis in just minutes. And with customizable reports, you can build a customer-facing proposal that impresses and puts your best foot forward. If you didn't know that Proposals is out, it's in beta now. So make sure you reach out and request that it get turned on. Should be rolling out to the rest of you in the Helioscope Landia sometime in Q1. Head to mysuncast.com. You can click on the Helioscope banner on the home page if you don't know what we're talking about. And as a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days free trial. That's right, 60 days to see what Helioscope can do for you. Find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other software on the market. You know, I wonder, what would you automate to help your business grow? Not just bigger, but better. Would it be invoicing, reporting, project planning, sending notifications, tracking subcontractors think of all the critical yet tedious tasks that take up so much of your working day wouldn't it be great if they were done automatically for you what if you could do all that and more within a little piece of software with powerhub you can powerhub helps you save time and money so that you can do more and focus on what matters Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to find out more. Well, Excel Energy uh, there in your now home state of Colorado operates in multiple states, uh, notably Minnesota. And not surprisingly, Colorado and Minnesota are two of the states that are leading the community solar charge. It's also where you derive most of your opportunity at present. Excel just announced uh, at the time of this recording yesterday, 100% uh, renewables target by 2050. Uh, I think that's interesting. 2030 is an 80% target. It'll be interesting to see how that impacts both community solar as well as the onboarding of, of different types of renewables. But one of the things that I feel gets, I feel like gets, gets muddled in the conversation around community solar is this truly community aspect and I wanted to offer an opportunity for you to sort of highlight some of SunShare's differentiation in the market because a lot of what we see the statistics pointing to is actually about 80% of community solar is not is not residential solar at all, right? It's 
It's a sort of pseudo retail purchasing policy that also allows communities to buy in to this larger solar farm that you know uh, retail customers are mostly footing the bill for. How do you how do you foresee a world where we have you know something closer to a hundred percent residential buy into a community solar program? Well, I think that's possible now. Uh, it's really just a question of how the programs are structured and the will of companies participating in those programs to push back on uh, particularly the, the finance space and not to let solar project finance dictate the way that they run their businesses and who they sell to. The, uh, the project finance space sees uh, consumer credit, particularly, you know, when you look at when I started SunShare, you know, after the, uh, the Great Recession, they, they see consumer credit as risky. Selling residential community solar, that's a traditional uh, consumer product. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was more expensive to finance uh, and much fewer people would finance residential community solar than would finance commercial and utility scale solar, much, much fewer. So at higher cost and less availability of capital, if any, at, at points. Um, so that's what I think drove a lot of um, project owners to subscribe commercial customers, particularly bankable commercial mm-hmm. customers with, with debt ratings and by standard and pours and Moody's and so on and so forth. We bucked that trend pretty early on. Um, you know, we have, we've built up the largest community solar uh, residential customer base in the country. We've signed up a uh, probably now over 9,000 customers coming up close on 10,000 customers um, to uh, community solar gardens that we have developed uh, in Colorado and Minnesota. And um, we've been really at the front end of uh, proving our community solar model and proving that uh, to financiers that it makes residential solar bankable. So we're starting to see that uh, market shift and we're starting to see banks, uh, tax equity providers, lenders uh, open up to the concept of residential community solar. The other thing that you're seeing, so you're seeing companies start driving that and going back to their banks and saying, you know, look, this is what you have to finance. And, mm-hmm. and the market's a lot more right. competitive right now um, for capital looking for homes. So we're able to drive that change to the market now better than we ever were. The other thing is uh, policy changes. So uh, it's, it's, as you might imagine, it's a lot more expensive to subscribe 250 residential customers to a one megawatt solar garden than it is to sign up uh, two, three, four large commercial customers to that same garden. Uh, you're, you're going from two, three, or four bills to 250 bills. Right. You're going to 250 doors. You're talking to 250 different families that include a thousand people in the family. And hopefully, I don't have to talk to all of them, but um, we would like to. But there's a lot of transactional costs that go into that. Uh, the other thing is municipalities and school districts don't tend to move. Uh, consumers move. So you have a churn in the customer base as well that you have to manage. Right. So from a policy perspective, you really need policymakers and regulators to recognize that there's those additional costs and build that into the rate structures. So in markets where you see uh, a fixed rate for commercial and residential customers that's set to the market, you typically see customers uh, being commercial customer offtake for those projects uh, because you can do that more cost effectively and bid more cost effectively into RFPs that the utility might run, so on and so forth. And if you were to do residential, you might not get chosen in the RFP because your costs would be too high. Um, states like uh, Minnesota, Illinois, New York are all putting in extra incentives and extra uh, credits for 
signing up residential customers to make that cost effective. So that's another shift that you've seen in the last couple of years is policymakers realizing that issue and uh, coming in behind that and, and looking to solve it through stru- structural changes. You spend an awful lot of time, and I think it's, it's interesting, in another life you might have probably been a good politician. Uh, it seems like you spend an oh, awful God, lot no. of time. <laughs> well, you at least understand what motivates them, right? You spend an awful lot of time, as I understand it, uh, with legislators, helping them understand the necessary steps to take. So I thought it'd be interesting to ask you, what currently are the market drivers dictating the way community solar is evolving? And what might be needed to see it move to where, uh, like where you'd want it to go, but also to see the uh, the boom that the, the industry at large believes is possible with community solar. Let's talk about those market drivers and you're welcome to discuss anything that you see presently that's an impediment, right? What log jams need to be moved? Well, I think um, the the biggest piece that needs to be resolved is this concept of limiting these programs. This is obviously an incentive of the monopoly utility to limit other people coming in and offering a product to their consumers. Uh, that's their existence is their control over that customer. So it's a, it's an inherent risk to them what we're doing um, by offering a product to their customers that their customers, frankly, like more than their own product or the, the, Mm -hmm. than the monopolies product. So they push to institute caps and make arguments around caps and so on and so forth. Uh, So the first thing is to, to take away those caps. The second thing is to independently regulate access to the, transmission and distribution system. Because those utilities typically have monopoly over the power production, they also have monopolies or even more so have monopolies over the transportation of that electricity. Mm -hmm. And this is something that was dealt with in the natural gas industry. Um, This is something uh, that has been dealt with in the telecom industry uh, as well. Looking when you're looking at deregulation is providing open access to that to that electricity system. In order for community solar really to grow, we have to improve that. We can't let utilities who are, don't have the same incentive as, as, as us to serve customers with customer choice programs, we can't let them hold back our ability to connect to the system. Right. And then the third part is creating the right economic structures to make sure that everyone has access to these programs like we were just talking about with, with um, increasing residential access. And uh, just like utilities, are able to charge residential customers a higher price than commercial customers to cover that extra cost of service. But we need to be allowed to have that, that same structure uh, in community solar. So those are the three top things that I would say uh, should be in any policy uh, handbook for opening up new community solar markets. And politicians have to be bold. Utilities will predict the world will end. Everybody's rates will go up. All these things will change. And they won't this is not so big and so scary, but, but whenever somebody doesn't want something to happen or wants to slow it down, that's, that's kind of the first thing that, that the person will say. So it's, it's human psychology and, and policymakers. Uh, there's been a lot of them across the country that have passed this legislation in, in, in now more than a dozen states, and it's up to them to, to help us drive this forward. David, it's impressive what you guys have been able to build in the last seven years, especially given that you in many ways are defining a new category you know, you recently announced uh, six new community solar garden projects in the Denver area with Excel. You guys are uh, one of, if not the largest supplier of community solar, certainly on the residential level, but to Excel Energy, you are, you just surpassed, congratulations, 100 megawatts of developed, built community solar projects, which any solar company is a, man, is, is a, is an, a remarkable milestone. How do you see community solar beginning to now influence and change the policies that are coming out of the utilities. 
there has been this sort of adversarial relationship, but you've got Excel committing to 100% renewables. I don't see how they could do that without something like community. So let's talk about that a little bit. You've got Colorado, Minnesota, and, and other states that probably you'll throw in there. It's a fun topic that, that really hits at the core of I'm doing community solar and why community solar is so exciting. Excel, uh, as uh, listeners will probably know uh, by now, has uh, has committed to be 100% carbon free. Not quite, so almost 100% renewable, but mm-hmm. they're they're playing, right. they're hedging their bet a little bit. But 100% carbon free, as far as I know, they are the first major U.S. utility to be committing to do that. And it just so happens that their two biggest states, Colorado and Minnesota, where vast majority of their customers and, and revenue derive from it, it, it are committing, making these commitments. And I think that's very exciting. And, you know, I'll be honest, talking to um, Melissa Hortman, uh, she's, uh, uh, by the time this comes out, she will be speaker of the Minnesota House of Representatives and a very strong supporter of community solar uh, in the state of of uh, Minnesota. She knew that supporting community solar early on was, and we were just talking about this uh, in December, she knew that supporting community solar was a risky and a new idea, but her goal was to get as many megawatts as possible out into the market and to get as many customers engaged as possible. And, you know, her thought process was spot on, was that by getting consumers engaged, putting this on the system and letting consumers see the benefits of these programs and of renewable energy and how it works, you're going to drive change. You're going to drive perception. And sure enough, when when Ben Falk, the CEO of Excel Energy, announced 100% carbon-free, he said, this is what our customers want. That's what I think the, the impact of what Community Solar has. He saw what happened with the release of the Community Solar Program in Minnesota, which, I mean, very quickly, uh, like within months, you had several gigawatts, I think even, uh, of projects in the queue for that program completely overwhelmed, Excel overwhelmed expectations. That was driven by consumer demand and excitement for uh, for this product. And I think that had a very serious impact on uh, Excel's commitment that they that they just announced. So I think community solar has that ability. I saw this in Colorado Springs too. And and now, you know, you see it in, in Colorado with, by the time this comes out, likely uh, that he will be governor, uh, Jared Polis committing to 100% renewable energy by 2040, which is earlier than Excel's commitment. And I, I hope that he sticks to it and even hits it earlier. You know, these things are being driven in states that have community solar because the way that community solar has in driving the benefits of of uh, community-based energy into uh, community-based renewable energy into consumers' homes. And at the end of the day, consumers are voters, and voters elect PUCs or elect elected officials such as governors who appoint the PUCs, who regulate the utilities, and they elect the legislatures who set the legislation that impacts the utilities. So that drive and awareness for renewable energy that I think community solar supports is, I think, directly correlated to these commitments that you're seeing to uh, 100% renewable energy. And it's very exciting to see that. And I, I hope that what we've seen is just the beginning of that and uh, that you see so much more when you get to vehicle electrification and so on and so forth. It's pretty exciting to see what the these legislators who had this vision years ago were, were able to create and where that has led in, in such a very short period of time. So we're going to move into a section I call lessons learned, uh, and then we'll move into learning uh, leadership and legacy. You seem to me like the type of person who actively seeks counsel. 
uh, and who knows how to take that counsel, internalize it into your business. What are some key lessons or takeaways from the most important mentors in your life? If I look to, to two of my mentors that I think are, are some of the people with the most foresight that, that I know, Amory Lovins uh, from the Rocky Mountain Institute and Tom Dinwiddie, who, who founded PowerLight, you know, they really taught me early on how to look past the, I'd call them the throes of the present, um, into the opportunities of the future and to be able to focus on those opportunities of the future and build on that future rather than build on the present. Hmm. Is there a, similarly, is there a pivot or a dead end, what might look at as a failure that most affected or influenced uh, your, your career? I don't know if I'd say there was a, a pivot. Um, you know, it, it's kind of strange when I back at my career, it, it almost looks like it was kind of planned out, uh, mm-hmm. but it wasn't at all. Um, it was very much just following my gut and uh, really kind of bumbling around until I hit onto something. Um, so uh, it, it was quite random, but it really did build up nicely through college and, and after college and into what I'm doing now. And um, so I don't know if there's any pivot. There was definitely lessons learned along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in, in starting my company, one of my biggest lessons in the last couple of years is that uh, equity, you know, raising equity and having some moderate dilution is not such a bad thing um, if you have the right partner, and, you know, and, and to be careful about uh, debt and cash intensive, intensive industries with uncertain timeframes as, you know, as we talked about with community solar, taking a lot longer than one would imagine going into the legislative and regulatory process that really can, can catch you up as a small business. So fortunately, it didn't turn into a, a pivot point for me, it turned into a learning experience, but mm-hmm. it could have. Yeah. I often will couch this to say, uh, is there any advice for fellow entrepreneurs in the throes of startup life? And I, you know, I've never heard anybody say quite the way you just said, uh, and feel free to add, to add to this with other advice, but be careful of debt and cash intensive industries with uncertain timeframes. You know, it's I'll... a dangerous combination right there. And it's a combination that that we uh, managed to find our way into. It's quite delicate. And we were able to, uh, you know, work our way out of it and come out really strong on the other side of it. But uh, it could have very easily turned into, um, you know, a, a pivot point uh, yeah. for us in, in the opposite direction. It has look for most in our industry. It has turned into a fire sale. We've seen that a lot, haven't we? Yeah, we have. I mean, well, well-meaning uh, founders, all-star teams, fire sale company because they can't cover their debt in a cash-intensive industry with uncertain timeframes. So that, that's that's you know the lesson I learned. I mean, the the benefit is we haven't diluted ourselves, but you know, going forward, I, I'm much more open to looking at equity. So you've still taken on no equity. Um, we haven't yet. We're probably going to be uh, considering doing that next year. To have done 100 megawatts with no equity you raise is phenomenal. Congratulations for that. What has you most excited right now for where the solar growth is happening? What's around the corner? What are you looking? Uh, what, what sort of corners are you looking around? Well, I think what I think is the most uh, exciting is uh, how close we are to being 100% renewable energy, to being uh, you know, pretty close to 100% vehicle electrification. And how few people recognize that. I mean, I would not be surprised if we could get pretty darn close to those two hurdles. Of course, it's always the last couple percent are the hardest. But if we right. get pretty darn close to that hurdle as soon as the 2030s. 
That's amazing. And um, that's, that's what keeps, that, that's, that's what excites me is how mm-hmm. fast that's going to change and how quick that's going to happen. And frankly, we need it to happen that quick. If, if, you know, anybody's uh, reading and uh, believing the, the truth in these, these science papers and what's happening to the climate, I hope we can make the pivot bat fast, but I think we're going to. I love it. You've already given me what probably will be your answer for our final question. We went, we haven't gotten there just yet, but we have an ongoing discussion with our partner at PV Magazine USA, Christian Rosalind, about this notion of 100% renewables and where's the real choke point? Scientists uh, suggest that some of the prognostications that were close, as you said, 2030 might be uh, possible or feasible. It's not the 80%, but the last 20% that becomes the real hurdle. So we're not there yet, and it is super exciting. Uh, I, I, echo, I sort of I echo that with you. It is a world that I feel the lo- the broad can the broader consumer world doesn't uh, quite understand is just is is around the corner. It's so much closer than uh, it is, and it, and it's so unbelievably impactful. You can't even recognize it when you look at. I mean, what happened in in history when there have been other events of climate change uh, because of volcanoes or, or meteors or other things? I mean, you hear mass extinction, you hear switching to ice ages and switching to you know tropical stages where Colorado had an ocean <laughs> as as we had uh, millions of years ago. This is not stuff that you want to be playing around with as a society. It makes all yeah. of the little problems that we have on a day to day basis disappear even though they're big, like healthcare and education, right. all these other things. When you look at changing the ecosystem and changing our planet, you're really messing with fire. And this is our opportunity, positive impact. And fortunately, so many of the right pieces, despite the adversity that we see from the White House, so many of the pieces are falling into place to, to make that transition happen. Is there a particular book that you would say either has dramatically influenced your thinking or that uh, similarly you give very often or recommend the most? Well, this one I actually bought for everybody at our company a couple of years ago, Natural Capitalism by uh-huh. Amory Lovins. Yeah. One of my favorites. And what is it about natural capitalism that uh, you want folks to take away? You know, what, well, what's fun about it is, is you look at, you know, I think Amory wrote it like 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you realize that, that everything is just happening right now. Long it took for us to, to get where we are. And how future forward he was at, at realizing where things were going to go. What gives me hope is that he has hope and yeah. he, he has been so far ahead of reality for so long. I love that. Um, that's pretty now, damn cool. Given that he's a mentor of yours, I'm sure he would love to hear that. What gives me hope is that he has hope uh, <laughs> that he is a bellwether for not you, but not only you, but many of us. Is there, are there any other books that you might recommend? One of the ways I ask this is if you had to go back to your intern days at Powerlight, what would you suggest that, David be reading to be more uh, to be re- more ready readier for the, what he was getting ready to walk into. Well, uh, you know, I, I did read one of these books. Then actually, I read it a little bit before. Then in college was um, a management book. If that's where you're going, it's a effective sure. executive by Peter Drucker. Yeah, um, which is a, a very good book. But but it's interesting. I I don't know if I guess I'd recommend it as a reader. But to, to be honest, I'm not sure. I really. I'm, I, I'm not sure I really understood it you, ah. because a lot of these concepts of management and people management, you don't understand until you're mm. in that situation. I remember always thinking when I was reading these books in college like that and good to great and things like that, uh, innovative executive and all, all those types of things. Um, I always remember thinking, man, I got to read these, you know, when I'm actually in the middle of it 
then when you're in the middle of it and running your own startup company and not sleeping and working seven days a week and all these things, you start reading a management book and, and you go right to sleep. <laughs> so, yeah. so actually, that's probably something I should do is, is, is uh, you know, read some of those books more. But, but um, I, I thought the effective executive was a really good one. How do you consume? Do you, do you listen to audio? Do you listen to, uh, do you read? How, how do you learn to, um, these days? I, I love reading and yeah. I, I tried the Kindle, um, you know, for a while until mine kind of fizzed out, but then I didn't bother getting a new one because it, it's kind of fun to have, uh, just have a real book. Yeah. I just bought a Kindle. So I'm going the other way. I actually, learned, I, I listen to audio, uh, most of the time, but, uh, you know, uh, Black Friday sale on Kindles and uh, yeah, that was pretty good. I saw that. It was pretty amazing. I actually got a white <laughs> Kindle Paperwhite for eighty bucks, uh, brand yeah, new, that's which pretty is a, good. Yeah, which is like the highest, most expensive one. So, uh, but the thing I love about the Kindle is I listen to audio on Audible, and you can hear your, you can listen to all your audio Audible books on the Kindle. Um, which oh keeps really. Me which keeps me away from the Does it actually start where the pages? Does it? Uh-huh. I think I heard about this, but I, I had the but version like right before this. this and it's uh, Bluetooth yeah. enabled instead. Um, oh my God. Yeah. So it's basically like now, instead of having all the distractions on my phone, which would normally sort of start pulling me away, like notifications or whatever, Kindle is my oasis, not to, to, to literally steal a word of theirs, but uh, it's my place where I can now just sort of focus on what I'm reading. But anyway, okay. down that nice. rabbit hole. I usually ask a question around habits, but I'm going to ask it slightly differently of you because I'm really curious as a young executive, what does a typical day look like for you? And perhaps express it for me in terms of how you set yourself up for success. That's a good question. I, I think I'm probably still looking to find that and to find the right, uh, you know, balance between that. But, you know, I usually start out, uh, you know, in the morning working at home, actually, and uh, I find it to be a little bit more comfortable, have the ability to uh, to focus better than I do at the office, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty important. So I'll take some phone calls in the morning, work on projects. How far from the office do you live? Well, actually, I, I now live less than a mile. So it's actually an easy walk to the office. Yeah. So a lot of days I'll, I'll walk to the office with my dog. And uh, that's also a great time to kind of reflect and uh, just to you know be outside on a nice day. Having a little bit of uh, get your blood flowing in the morning has always been helpful. And then I usually uh, try to wrap it up by uh, doing some sort of exercise in the evenings. You exercise in the evenings. You find that helps you sleep better? Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, definitely. But not I've a never conscious never gotten into decision. exercising yeah. in the morning, but I, I, uh, I, I'd like to try that at some point. Just never really have forced myself to do it. How do you structure that so that if you, you know, you know you want to start the day at a certain time, how do you structure your evening routine? Do you have one? Uh, you know, I really don't have an evening routine. I mean, usually um, I will end up going to bed, uh, you know, around eleven o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's often influencing influenced by the uh, the book that I'm reading at the time, and uh, you know how uh, enthralled in that that book that I am. Sometimes uh, that could uh, keep me up quite late. Is there one? Is there a book? I'm going to selfishly do this. Is there a book lately that kept you up past eleven? You know, I'm reading a, a funny book um, by uh, Carl Hyacin. He's a, he's a comic writer. He's a reporter down from the Miami Herald in South Florida. And I, I grew up in South Florida. And uh, But he's a reporter with an environmental bent. So he uh, writes these books. And, and there's always this, uh, in all of his, or most of his books, there's this character called Skink, who's a one-eyed former governor of Florida, who's a hardcore environmentalist who one day, just hating the political morass that's Florida. I feel like I could say this after the recent election. Um, he just a couple of years into it, just decided that he was going to peace out from politics and wandered off into the Everglades. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that, that's like a, a core character that somehow pops up in, in 
all of Carl Heisen's books, and uh, he's, he's quite good. Florida Actually, City. you know, you know, who got me started on Carl Heisen was uh, J.W., who who you said you've inter- interviewed. That's right. What's uh, this? Uh, you, so, what's the book called? Um, this one's called A Skinny Dip. A Skinny Dip, uh, and it's about a woman who got um, pushed over the uh, a cruise ship on her honeymoon. Oh boy, quite, quite that's funny. That is funny. Uh, where, if folks were so inclined, and if you are uh, involved in, oh, one other one, Monkey yeah. Wrench Gang. I'd recommend that to people by Edward Abbey. Monkey Wrench Gang. Mon- Monkey Wrench Gang by by Edward oh, Abbey. Game. It's another okay. Uh, no gang. Mon- Monkey Wrench Gang. Gang. Yeah. Edward Abbey. Got it. I love it. These are all going straight on my Kindle. I have a yeah. I very selfishly. Uh, I I have said for the last. Six months. I'm going to start a Suncast book club because I do get <laughs> I get four to for to ten book book recommendations per episode, which is two episodes a week on average. Well, you better uh, have to save a lot of time for reading with all that. I do, I do. So I know that you're on LinkedIn. Uh, we've connected there. Well, I'll link to your LinkedIn and your Facebook and uh, and your website. And uh, is there anything if you had an ask of the Suncast audience, what, what would you have us know or or be thinking about? Well, from what you said about your your audience, I'd probably, um, I think my ask would be to uh, get out there and just start something. And if, if you ever ever had an idea, don't don't let fear run your life. Mm. Wow. Just take your idea and run with it. All right, that's, that's how we're going to change change the world. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction. You've already made one. Let's see if you have another in you. What one thing do you, David, see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, I, I think it's tied to the to the one I mentioned before. I, I think um, we're going to be 100% renewable. I think we're going to be close to 100% uh, of uh, electrified vehicles as soon as 2040. And I think that um, that's what is going to uh, hopefully mitigate or even solve our climate crisis is the speed at which we're going to get there. And with visionary leaders like you at the, at the helm of companies like Sunshare, uh, we have, I have hope that our future is looking more and more secure. David Amster Olszewski, founder and CEO of Sunshare. Thank you for joining us on Suncast, my friend. You're, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Well, Warriors, I hope this was a great way to kick off your new year and that you've learned something you didn't know. I'd be honored if you'd give Suncast a rating and review in iTunes. Or better yet, would you share your favorite episode, or maybe this one, with a colleague, friends, and family? If you learned anything from today's episode, I'd also love to know it. And so would others. If you'd like to learn more about what David and the Sunshare team are up to, then head to the blog page at mysuncast.com for the show notes, links, incredible book recommendations, and more. Huge congrats again to Sunshare and David for hitting that momentous 100 megawatt milestone right there at the end of the year. You guys are doing amazing things. Hey, while you're on the website, I'd like to encourage you also to sign up for our weekly newsletter where I share my thoughts on each episode and I pass along interesting tidbits I've dug up in my quest to be relevant on Twitter. And of course, if you're loving what we produce here at Suncast and would like to drop a tip in our virtual tip jar, you can head over to the Become a Member page and learn more about the Suncast tribe and join us on our Patreon page, which is also linked there. Next up on Suncast, I'm honored to welcome one of the iconic founders of the 2000s-era solar company boom, and sure to be legendary clean tech investor, Mr. Andrew Beebe. There were very few people listening to that argument in that case, and uh, to put it in context, you know, Al Gore's movie hadn't come out yet, and climate change was like a setting on a thermostat. 
So tune in to learn next Thursday how Andrew became partner number four in the venture fund Obvious Ventures, which Ev Williams and BizStone started right after Twitter. In the meantime, I look forward to interacting with you on the interwebs and inside the Suncast communication channels. Remember, you are what you listen to. Happy New Year, Warrior, and thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.